Welcome to the Zombie Cutter Podcast, where less is more, worse is better, and features have purpose. This is Andrew, hopefully your favorite undead coder, and I'm speaking this morning from, well, way too early to be awake. I decided that in the spirit of the undead, I would record this podcast early in the morning, where, as all good coders know, you shouldn't be awake. We're all night people, right? Well, at least I'm a night person. And this is episode two. And the first episode, we covered the rise of Usenet and news groups and kind of the original history of how they developed. And in this episode, I'm going to talk about how they went away. Well, or declined. Well, did they decline? That's kind of the the first question. I, I think if you're going to look at something, you need to first check your assumptions and make sure that they're true. And Subject of the decline of news groups, I think it's a valid question to ask, did they actually decline? And searching the internet, I didn't really find a lot of evidence of a mass decline in users. There really aren't good statistics that I was able to locate. And in fact, the best I could do on proving some documentation of the decline of, of Usenet was a Wikipedia section on Usenet decline, and even that didn't list any statistics. Um, there, there's no user counts that I could find. Um, maybe if we looked at like Giga News or one of the bigger news group sites, we could come up with uh, some user counts. But what we can do is look at ISPs offering news groups, and that there is an obvious decline. And in fact, uh, from the years 2000 to 2010, we can see almost every major ISP drop uh, newsgroup support. And I think uh, 2010 is a worthwhile year to mention because that is the year that I would put the spiritual death of Usenet. Uh, that is the year where Duke University retired their newsgroup servers. Now, if, you, if you're keeping track, Duke University was the original newsgroup, the the original Usenet site. They were the first to to create Usenet. So let's go back and look at the timeline for how Usenet declined. And in order to do that, we really got to kind of take a detour to the consumer market. And let's go back to 1979. So while our adventurers, Tom and Jim, were getting Duke and UNC talking to each other. A, another venture by the name of CompuServe started offering dial-up BBS services to mainstream consumers, uh, general public households. And at this point in time, of course, household computers were still relatively rare, mostly owned by, well, well, the early gamers, I guess you'd say. And CompuServe... Funny enough, it was not originally intended or originally set up as an ISP. It was sourced from an insurance company, of all people. And that insurance company wanted to basically make some money off of their big computers and offer uh, time-sharing services over uh, dial-up. And so CompuServe, they were kind of one of the original big ISPs, but you also had other people offering these BBS services. And one of the larger networks of BBSs was known as FidoNet. And that is actually where I 
kind of had my first online experiences by downloading uh, various games from a FidoNet uh, BBS. There were also other more corporate BBS services, and the big one there was Prodigy. They were started by a joint venture between CBS and AT&T, and they looked a lot like CompuServe. In both CompuServe and Prodigy, they had this sort of dial-in, pay-per-hour sort of setup. This was back when uh, 1-900 numbers and whatnot were very popular. You'd even have to, believe it or not, pay to call the directory service to get the phone number for a local business. Who else was around this time? Well, there was another company called uh, Control Video Corporation. They started in 1983, and they were set up to offer downloaded or rented games for the Atari 2600. And, well, the technology wasn't there yet. So they immediately went broke in that, that first year of their founding, and they reformed as Quantum Computer Services, and they would later reform again as a little company known as America Online. At this point in time, we're kind of up to the, the early 90s, late 80s. So you have these major BBS services, and they're offering mainstream computers or mainstream consumers uh, the ability to dial in, download newspaper articles, download shareware games, that sort of stuff. But they didn't really have major connectivity to the internet um, for various reasons. Now, if we turn back to Usenet at this point in time, the current technology picture, you have ARPANET and NSFNet as the main government-backed networks, and then you have the UUCPNet that is this network of nerds connecting Unix computers, some businesses, but really it's, it's a little bit formal. But it's not nearly as uh, big a deal as the, the ARPANET and NSFNet stuff. And then there was kind of this weird technical wrinkle about UUCPNet and NSFNet and ARPANET. When I say weird technical wrinkle, weird legal, weird legal wrinkle in that technically... NSFNet and ARPANET were only for government research and non-commercial purposes, and UUCPNet did not have that limitation. So UUCPNet had no real rules or no real formal rules on whether or not you could do commercial stuff there. Now, it was very much frowned upon, and, and no one really did because of this legal wrinkle where UUCPNet and ARPANET technically couldn't be connected if commercial activity was going on or, or being shared over ARPANET. Enter the U.S. Congress and Al Gore. In 1992, the U.S. Congress passed the Scientific and Advanced Technology Act allowing different networks to connect over NSFNet and ARPANET that were not strictly for research or government use. And this allowed everybody to start talking together. It, it really was, to give Al Gore some credit, the beginning of the Internet. At this point, you saw UCPNet, NSFNet, and ARPANET begin to integrate. And it didn't take long for the former BBS systems to see the opportunity of giving the general public access. And indeed, that is the main reason why that law was passed. 
Of course, the smaller ISPs started first, and, and that is where my family originally got access uh, to, to the, <laughs> I hesitate to call it the internet, because it really looked nothing like the internet looks uh, today. Um, most of the the websites you would go to would wouldn't even be hosted on what you would consider a like a web domain or not a web domain but wouldn't be hosted on a a web page there you go uh most things were accessed at that point at least that I saw through gopher and uh news groups so you could go to a gopher site and you could get articles you could go to news groups you could get articles there and your email address really told the story of who you were relative to the rest of the internet. And that, that will become a little bit more important later, especially in September of 1993. Now, this is the day that one of the major ISPs, AOL, opened the floodgates and updated their service to include Usenet access. And it's kind of a funny trick of history because in September, that would have been the time that you would have usually seen graduate students, uh, new freshmen coming in, get their first access to the Usenet network. And being new to it, they wouldn't have known the general rules of decorum and netiquette uh, that, that were common to those sites. And so in September, you had... AOL unleashed the general public onto this uh, network, and the end result was a mass dilution of the existing culture that Usenet had. Uh, you went from strictly students and researchers to everybody on there, and it had a huge impact. Uh, the, the original culture kind of went away. That was really what I would call the beginning of the end uh, for Usenet. Of course, AOL was only the first major ISP. CompuServe and Prodigy quickly, quickly followed in their, their footsteps. And all three being on Usenet now, you had this mass opportunity for really anybody to post anything. And they did. They, there was a lot of new activity on these news sites. And you also had increasing levels of home bandwidth. When Usenet first started, uh, you were lucky to have a modem that could transfer a whole article in a reasonable amount of time. At, at this point, you're getting faster and faster modems, being able to communicate more and more data with more and more people. And that's putting a lot more pressure on the network. And it got so bad at this point in time that you started to see fractures of the, of the network. The earlier UUNet uh, service that was the initial ISP for Usenet ended up getting the Usenet death penalty for a brief period of time. The Usenet death penalty is where the other providers of the network say, no, we're not going to host your stuff. Uh, we're not going to share your messages. And so people going through UUNet the original, the original Unix, uh, uh, the Unix, you know, network were being denied access. Now it only happened for, I think it was about a week, but still it was an amazing fracture in this early network. And then you had in 1998, things got again to the point where 
moderators and volunteers policing spam actually went on strike to try to demonstrate to the general public just how bad the spam problem had gotten in an effort to get ISPs to try to figure out ways of filtering. And much like phone call filtering today, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't easy to do. And of course there weren't good solutions. And so nothing really happened. Nothing really nothing really came of that. And then you had in the nineteen ninety nine to early two thousand era, up to a third of ISP bandwidth was Usenet activity and it was taking up substantial cost and you had fewer users. So ISPs did not necessarily see the cost-benefit ratio of hosting Usenet. And you add into that the new creation of a few major Usenet services that offered premium Usenet services. Uh, They generally advertised higher retention of articles, more bandwidth, more connectivity, so that you you could see more content. And so ISPs basically said, you know, no one's really using this. They might as well pay someone else to get it. They don't. We don't need to offer it for free because the people that do want it, they're using these other services. And now we get to kind of the opinion portion of this podcast where I'm going to share my thoughts here. And, and really, I've given kind of the evidence at the beginning here, but there's not a lot of concrete reason that I think you could really put on something especially when if you look at it from an objective viewpoint there's an immediate question of whether or not it's reality and i will share that anecdotally uh going to news groups that i used to frequent you don't see legitimate posts anymore the vast majority of posts that you will see on on usenet servers are spam Uh, currently COVID spam. Uh, The vast majority of posts I see are for vitamin packages or pill packages or buy this supplement sort of thing for the COVID cure or whatever you want to, you know, call that. Um, And then you have, of course, the usual get rich quick schemes and mail enhancements and all that sort of garbage on, on there as well. And the, Legitimate posts are few and far between. There's a few Usenet groups that you will see some degree of activity on. Just as a disclaimer, I am I'm not discussing any of the binary uh, sharing groups. Uh, those, I would say, are a different... They're not really associated to me with the original Usenet and news groups. They're using the technology, but... I don't think they're part of the original culture. I I would say the original culture, if you go to the big eight, the big eight being the original uh, or the reformed news group names, they are fairly devoid of content, uh, devoid of activity. Why would I say they all died? And and what would I put the cause at? And, And I would kind of break this down into a few different categories and the first one to me is awareness. In the late 90s and early 2000s, you had a mass marketing of www. And it was the thing to have, you know, a little jingle with .com at the end. 
And indeed, we're talking about kind of the dot-com bubble at this point in time, the mass uprise of various websites that were going to make lots of money with no real business plan. And then kind of going forward on that, you had cost. And cost, especially if you look at the user count and the, the proposition of hosting news groups, if it cost a third of your bandwidth, and your general home user wasn't aware of it, they're not going to use it. And so what would you want for as an ISP? Would you want that one-third of extra bandwidth to save on your cost, or would you want to host a service that no one used because it was culturally part of what an ISP offered? And ISPs really chose that option of saying, okay, we're not going to host this. In fact, when you kind of look at the downfall of this, AOL was the first ISP to discontinue. And I say first, they were one of the first, but really the major uh, uh, kind of signal of the death of news groups when they discontinued Usenet on June of 2005. Uh, Others would follow. And that kind of gets into another area. So we we have awareness and cost now. And I'm going to add legality. So Usenet was completely a free-for-all in that the technology relied on all these various computers basically sharing everything with everyone else. It was a store-and-forward technology. So when a message would come into a Usenet server from anyone, that Usenet server was responsible for sending it to all the other Usenet servers. And that made a big problem of, well, one, you have to figure out how to filter content. And, and that was really hard at this time. The computing resources that like Google has for YouTube videos and, and automatic filtering were not nearly as developed. And so you have people sending stuff that is illegal. Typically, the big example here was child pornography. And, and that was... You know, sad to say, people were sharing, you know, that sort of obscene content. And, of course, you would have politicians make a big deal about it. It, it, it is a huge problem, yes. And uh, the, the government of New York and the Attorney General Andrew Cuomo, he would basically engage Usenet and would threaten the major ISPs that were hosting Usenet, even though several had tried to already filter out these binary groups altogether. And the end result of this was that in 2008, the major ISPs in bulk dropped Usenet. That was really the beginning of the end. So after 2008, if you wanted Usenet, you were either on a smaller ISP or you were buying Usenet from another service, uh, another service provider that was a little less watchful, if we should say that, a little less watchful of what content was being hosted. They were, well, maybe not less watchful. Let's say they were willing to turn a blind eye to the illegal content on the Usenet servers in justification of serving the other content. And, and sadly, At that point, the people that had originally hosted and created this had moved on to better things. Some, in my opinion, due to just straight-up burnout 
of fighting this fight against uh, illegal content or spam. And some just because other technologies became more popular. You had really a fair amount of shift over to mailing lists in the development community. It became common to, instead of having a news group where you would discuss development, you would have a mailing list, and that mailing list could be monitored such that only users of the mailing list could send mail to it. Since only users of that mailing list would be able to send mail to it, you could easily filter, or not necessarily easier, it was easier to filter the amount of spam and, and get it down. So you would occasionally have a bad actor that would get on a mailing list and send out a bunch of spam messages. But after you saw it happening, you could go and delete those. And then you, the usual spam filtering of your ISP for email would also kick in at that point, which was getting a little bit better. And there you have it, the death of Usenet. I, I think it's a really interesting story in that you see this rise of technology. You, you do see the undead technology, and that's kind of the thing I love thinking about is all these random technologies that exist today that were developed for whatever reason that are being used in ways that they were never intended to be used for. Uh, Usenet now or newsgroups now. Or I wouldn't even say news, news groups now, or let's say NNTP. Uh, the protocol for news groups is being used largely for file sharing. Um, and I, I will say, you know, I'm kind of hard on it for being illegal file sharing, but there's also legal file sharing going on there too. Um, and there are hobby groups and whatnot that are still doing cool things on news groups. In fact, if you want to look at news groups for yourself, I am... Linking in the show notes, uh, two recommended solutions. Uh, the first is a free news group provider, uh, eternalseptember.org. And they are offering only text access uh, to news groups, which means you're not going to get any of the binary file sharing. And that's why, really, they can offer it for free. They are only offering, well, you you might cynically say, just the spam. Um, be, because, like I, I said, it's... <laughs> mostly now uh, COVID and mail enhancement uh, advertisements. But they do offer news groups that are text only, and you can find some degree of communication. Uh, there's, there's some active communication going on some of the AI uh, news groups. There's some active communication going on on some of the development news groups. Uh, there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of nothing too. Um, if you look at the comp hierarchy, you'll see just, mass numbers of groups that haven't had a single post since uh, 2016, 2015, 2014, uh, 2008, uh, where they switched over to either mailing lists or just kind of rolled off users until no one was really there anymore. Um, for a news group reader, I'm just going to have to say Mozilla Thunderbird. I I don't really know of a good user-friendly newsgroup reader. I think Thunderbird kind of comes close. It's a little bit of a pain in the rear to set up. If anybody has a better suggestion, uh, just send me a note, and I'll try to put it in the show notes uh, for this episode. And as always, uh, for any factual episode, I would appreciate corrections. Uh, a lot of this comes from my, my memory, and my memory ain't all that good, especially when you start talking about 20 years ago. Um, 
I was younger then, obviously, talking about my family and my father and whatnot. Yeah, if you have suggestions or or corrections, please send those to me, and I will include those in the notes for the show. Well, that's it for this episode of The Zombie Coder. I hope you enjoyed the history of news groups. Coming soon will be some more uh, historical segments, but also I plan on talking a lot about uh, some current day stuff and current day technology and developments and reviewing some current day software. So I uh, don't think that this is only going to be limited to nostalgia here. Uh, the the undead, well, the thing about the undead is there a problem in the present too, right? So hope you enjoyed this and until next time, Zombie Coder out.